and welcome to Emma's ESL English. So this month on the 8th of March, so actually next month, but only by a few days. <laughs> um, on the 8th of March, it is International Women's Day. So what I decided to do is um, four episodes, all kind of in honor of that day. So what I'm going to do is three readings from three different women. And then uh, on International Women's Day itself, I'll have a bit more of a discussion about those three pieces, why I chose those three pieces, and just generally stuff, perspective. And rather than having analytical episodes, which I do think are helpful, but um, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> um, uh, with these three, I don't think these three have particularly difficult language, actually. Um, there are some words, though. There is some vocabulary that is less common. So what I'm going to do is put all of the vocabulary into the blog, as usual, www.mzslenglish.com. And um, I'll just focus on the reading in the podcast. They are a little bit longer than normal, but meh, it'll be fine. So the first book that I'm reading from is this one. I hope you know who Jane Goodall is. <laughs> I really hope you know. What I wanted to do, since this is a celebration of international women, what I wanted to do was get some different perspectives of women um, about the world, about the future, about, you know, different things. So... But this one, this book is actually really interesting because of Jane's background. Um, but she was always a hero to me. I adored chimpanzees from the first time I ever saw them. I was hooked. Chimpanzees, gorillas, I loved them so much. I was addicted. As a kid, I wanted a monkey. I will try and remember to put a picture on the blog. I met monkeys. I finally got to meet monkeys. It was my dream and I did it when I went to Florida. Um... It probably wasn't the best environment to do it, but it was a dream and I fulfilled it. Um, I was obsessed. <laughs> I was obsessed with monkeys. So from a pretty young age, I knew about Jane Goodall and she was definitely my hero. Um, she started studying chimpanzees when she was a young woman. And she really, I think... I think we can say, maybe not single-handedly with the other women... Um, Diane Fossey, who was studying uh, gorillas, famously Gorillas in the Mist, the movie Sigourney Weaver, about her. And there's another lady in Borneo who studies orangutans, who were all inspired and uh, supported by one man, uh, who we will not go into because it's International Women's Day. Um, but Jane was not a scientist. She was a secretary. And maybe because of that, when she came to discuss chimpanzees, she did it in a totally different way. And she was very much aware of their emotional capacity while scientists were eradicating any emotional capacity they thought they might have. It's way easier to do experiments on animals that look and feel very human if you believe that they're not capable of emotion. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. So um, this part of the book is talking about compassion, really. It's about compassion and love. 
So I want to read you this little bit first about um, a pair of chimpanzees. They're both male. Um, and then it goes on to her ideas about compassion. All right. One most moving story is about orphan Mel and Spin Spindle, his adolescent protector. Mel was three and a quarter years old when his mother died. He had no elder brother or sister to adopt him. To our amazement, for we thought he would die, he was adopted by 12-year-old Spindle. Although all members of the Gombe chimpanzee population have a few genes in common, Spindle was certainly not closely related to Mel. Nevertheless, as the weeks went by, the two became inseparable. Spindle waited for Mel during travel. He permitted the infant to ride on his back, even allowed him to cling beneath as the, a mother carries her baby. When Mel was frightened or when it was raining. Most remarkably, if Mel got too close to the big males during a social excitement when inhibitions were sometimes swept aside, Spindle would hurry to remove his small charge from danger, even though this usually meant he was buffeted himself. For a whole year, this close relationship endured, and there can be no doubt that Spindle saved Mel's life. Why did Spindle act that way, burdening himself with the care of a small, sickly youngster who was not even a close relative? Probably we shall never know, but it is interesting to reflect that during the epidemic that claimed Mel's mother, Spindle's ancient mother died also. A typical 12-year-old chimpanzee, though perfectly able to fend for himself, will continue to spend much time with his mother, especially if he has been through a stressful time with the adult males or has been hurt in a fight. Is it possible that Spindle's loss of his mother left an empty space in his life and that the close contact with a small independent youngster helped to fill that space? Or did Spindle experience an, emotional simil an emotion similar to what we call compassion? Perhaps he felt a mixture of both. Chimpanzees in zoos are often kept in enclosures surrounded or partially surrounded by water-filled moats. Since they do not swim, death by drowning has been a sadly frequent mishap. But almost always, one or more of the victim's companions have attempted to rescue the individual in difficulties. There are a number of accounts of heroic rescues or rescue attempts. In one instance, an adult male lost his life as he tried to rescue a drowning infant who was not his own. Evolutionary biologists do not count the helping of family members as true altruism. Your kin all share, to a greater or lesser extent, some of the same genes as yourself. So your action, they argue, is just a way of ensuring that many of those precious genes are as possible are many of those precious genes as possible are preserved. Even if you lose your life through helping some helping act, your mother or sibling or child who has been saved will ensure that your genes are still represented in future generations. Plus your behavior can be seen as fundamentally selfish. Thus, sorry, that was thus. And what if you help an individual who's not related to you? This is explained as an example of reciprocal altruism, to help your companion today in the expectation that he will help you tomorrow. This sociobiological theory, while helpful in understanding the basic mechanism of the evolutionary process, tends to be dangerously reductionist 
when used as the sole explanation of human or chimpanzee behavior. After all, whilst our biological nature and instincts can hardly be denied, we are and have been for thousands of years caught up in cultural evolution as well. We do things which are sometimes quite unrelated to any hope for genetic survival in the future. Even Richard Dawkins, in an interview with the London Times magazine, said, Most of us, if we see somebody in great distress, weeping, we will go and put an arm around them and try to console them. It's a thing I have an overwhelming impulse to do, and so we know that we can rise above our Darwinian past. When he was asked how this could be, he smiled and said he didn't know, but I gradually came to see that a simple explanation presents itself. Patterns of caring and helping and reassurance evolved over thousands of years in the context of the mother-child and family relationships. In this context, they are clearly beneficial to the well-being of the living individuals as well as in the case of evolutionary sense. So these behaviours have become ever more firmly embedded in the genetic endowment of chimpanzees and other higher social animals. And so we would expect an individual who is constantly interacting with other familiar companions with whom he plays, grooms, travels and feeds and with whom he falls close relationships to treat them at least sometimes as honorary family members. Obviously, then he is likely to respond to the distress or pleas of these honorary family members as well as those of his blood relations. In other words, a close but not related companion may be treated as if he or she were biological kin. Compassion and self-sacrifice are highly valued qualities in many human cultures. If we know that another person, particularly a close personal friend or relative, is suffering, we become upset. Only by doing something, by helping or trying to help, can we alleviate our own discomfort. We may also feel the need to help people we do not know at all. We send money or clothing or medical equipment to earthquake victims, refugees, or other suffering people in all corners of the globe. Once their plight has been brought to our attention, do we do these things so that others will applaud our virtuous behavior? Or because the sight of starving children or homeless refugees evokes in us feelings of pity which make us incredibly uncomfortable. Feelings of guilt because we know we have so much and they have so little. If our motivation to perform charitable acts is simply to advance our social standing or to lessen our inner discomfort, should we not conclude that our action in the final analysis is nothing more than selfish? Some might argue thus, and in some cases it could be true. But I believe it is wrong, dangerous even, to accept reductionistic arguments of this sort that denigrate all that is most truly noble in our species. History resounds with tales of extraordinary inspirational acts of courage and self-sacrifice. Good heavens, the very fact that we can feel distressed by the plight of people we have never met says it all for me. It is surely remarkable and heartwarming that we can empathize and feel truly saddened when we hear of a brain-damaged child in an accident, an elderly couple losing their life savings to a thief, a family dog stolen and sold to a medical research lab and traced too late to be saved. So here we are, the human ape, half sinner, half saint, 
with two opposing tendencies inherited from our ancient past, pulling us now toward violence, now towards compassion and love. Are we forever to be torn in two different directions, cruel in one instance, kind in the next? Or do we have the ability to control these tendencies, choosing the direction we wish to go? The end. That's kind of long. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of a long piece. But I just think it's really interesting uh, questions to think about in our modern times. We'll come back to those questions in a later episode. See you next time. Bye.